0: So we are in a series looking at vices. I want to start with a really fun scripture passage this morning. It says this, kiss me and kiss me again, for your love is sweeter than wine. You are so handsome, my love, pleasing beyond words. The soft grass is our bed. Ooh. (laughs) Song of Solomon, this bizarre book placed right in the middle of the Bible that is a poetic summary of the beauty of human sexuality, right? It's a steamy piece of writing. If you've not read it, go home, uh, have a little read. If you're married, read it to your spouse, see the look on their face. Um, the Bible celebrates sex and sexuality, uh, and the church has not done so well in this arena. Let me ask this question, when it comes to the vices, why is the vice that gets associated with sex the one that we treat as worse than all the others while the community around us celebrates it as better than all the rest? What is it that's gone wrong in our understanding that we decide that people that fall in this area are worse than all the others? We've been working with this definition of vice, right? A vice is a character trait that habituates us toward a certain type of action. So these are the ruts in our brains that we constantly go to that fuel all of the other uh, sin that we engage in. Through the history of the church, there's been debates about which ones fit in here, but there's these seven slash eight that are the most common ones that we look at. And the one in the church that we spend the most time on Uh, The one that we spend the most time judging people on is lust. So let's look at a definition of lust before we go in to the content for today. So lust is the desire for sexual pleasure apart from covenant love relationship. Lust is the desire for sexual pleasure apart from covenant love relationship. So little confession side note here. Um, I've been using a lot of images in this series right you can't go on Google and type in images of lust and find anything that you want your eyes on or anything that we can show at church so that's been a little bit tricky for this one but but I want to show you a picture that when I think of this is the first picture from media that comes to mind for me does anyone know what that movie the scene is from Titanic right the moment where Kate and Jack get in the carriage and it gets a little bit steamy, right? Culture, media loves to portray human sexuality in all its forms. We we get captivated. You've got shows like Game of Thrones explicit in what they're showing and all of its crassness. There's something, there's characters in shows. I used to think when I watched Friends that Joey Tribbiani was my favorite character until one day someone was talking about it and it's, let's summarize all the characters. Like You know, Monica's OCD and... Uh, and uh, What's this? I've just blanked. What, who's her brother? Ross is like super geek. I was like, I can see his face, can't get his name. And they went, and Joey Tribbiani is just a pervert. And I was like, oh... I I don't think I should like his character anymore. There's something in culture and society that wants to celebrate this. Another image that that is also something that's familiar um, when it comes to uh, the world's view of sex and sexuality is this triple X, right? We've got all of these issues in the world with deviant sexuality. Let me show you some harrowing statistics, right? Brace yourself for this. 6.3 million people are trafficked into sexual commercial exploitation. Up to to 50,000 women and children are forced into sex slavery in the U.S. every year. So that's by the end of this year, another 50,000 women and children will be forced into sex. One One in 13 boys are sexually abused, and that number may be higher because boys disclose it less than girls do. One in six women are victims of attempted or completed rape. The pornography industry brings in approximately $100 billion annually, and in the US, about $13 billion has been spent on pornography. 28,258 users watch pornography every second. $3,000 is spent on porn every second. One in five mobile phone searches are for pornography. The first exposure to m- pornography among men is about 12 years old on average. What is going on in our culture? What is going on in our culture? With all of these vices we've, as we've looked at them, as we set them up, I, I want you to be aware at the beginning uh, with each of them that there is a spectrum of how people interact with lust as a vice. So on one end of the spectrum is the one that we spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about in the church and judging other people by, which is the the promiscuous side of sexuality, which is out there doing the things that you're not supposed to do. Um, Those people are controlled by lust, but there is another group of people that are also controlled by lust, and they express it by hyper purity. Don't touch anything. Don't do anything. Sex is bad. Sexuality is bad. It's evil. Stay as far away from it as you can. People on both sides of that spectrum, though it doesn't look like it, are equally motivated by lust and controlling their lives around the pursuit or the denial of pleasure. When I think about the question, what is it going on in the world that means this stuff is so rampant? Well, we know the biblical answer is sin. Sin. Um, But when I think about the role that the church has played historically in conversations about sexuality, there's a great woman, Julie Slattery, who wrote a book called Rethinking Sexuality. And in the book, she coined a phrase. uh, The book is all about what she calls sexual discipleship. And she says, in the church, we focus discipleship on how to get someone's soul into heaven. And we've missed most of the rest of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. She says the church has been largely silent in communicating a healthy view of human sexuality and because of the church's silence or the church's overly negative portrayal of human sexuality, the world has had to look to the world for discipleship in the area of sexuality. So in the church, if you have kids, if you are silent and educating your children about healthy sexuality, if you are really shy and embarrassed when talking about human sexuality, your kids will go to the people in their classrooms who are more comfortable talking about it for their education. That's a scary thing. We in the church have failed at sexual discipleship. We've not educated the church to understand what healthy biblical sexuality should look like. Let me give you an excerpt from Julie Slattery's book. She says, sexuality presents an enormous challenge to Christians and to the world at large. It's not a problem to be solved, but a territory to be reclaimed. The culture has captured the conversation of sexuality with a persuasive narrative while Christians seem stifled with an outdated list of sexual do's and don'ts. We will never combat the growing confusion and pain of sexuality by swatting at the issues of pornography, premarital sex, same-sex attraction, sex trafficking, sexual harassment in the workplace and abuse. Each of these is a byproduct of a larger tragedy We don't understand sexuality within the context of the Christian narrative and the call to follow Jesus. As a result, Christian leaders and parents are at a loss at how to navigate the growing chorus of sexual pain and chaos. Can anyone resonate with that? As you look at the brokenness around you, as you look at friends and family that you care about and you see the pain that they endure, so often we're at a loss to give them a reasonable answer for what needs to happen in their life. Another phrase that some writers have coined, many in the church because of this are sexual atheists. So what does that mean? There are people sitting in churches who say they believe in God and would claim the name of Christian But when it comes to human sexuality and what I should do in the privacy of my own home, God doesn't have anything to say there. So they'll say, I can do what I want in the sexual arena. God doesn't speak there, but in the rest of my life, I'm gonna try and follow God. We have taken God out of our sexuality and so we're sexual atheists. You don't need to raise your hands, but how many people in here would be put in that category where you failed to put God in the middle of human sexuality and all of its expressions? In our sin, we want to write off God from this arena because if God doesn't have anything to say about human sexuality, then I'm free to indulge whatever pleasure, whim, or fancy comes my way. We've got it in the church, begin to disciple people in the area of their sexuality and bring God back into the center of that conversation. You know this part, right? The Bible gives some very stark exhortations around lust. So let's look at a couple of them just to to frame this at the beginning. The Bible is not silent about this. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. So he's quoting one of the 10 commandments. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, And throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to go into hell. We're really good in the church at looking at all those people out there and the way they engage their sexuality, sleeping around, cohabitation, same-sex relationship, you name whatever the issue is, bestiality on the extreme end of the spectrum. We look at those things and we condemn and we criticize and we put ourselves on our high horses while we go home and we jump on the internet browser and look at pornography. Or we walk down the street and we look at a person. And we lust after them in our hearts or we open a steamy romance novel and we get caught up in the feelings that are there. We are guilty of lust in our heart while condemning the people out there who are acting on it. So what do we do in the church? We condemn the people who we can see physically doing things while we let ourselves off the hook around the things that we're doing in secret. And what's the message that he gives here? It's not about setting boundaries and limits. This is in, this is out, this is right, this is wrong. He's saying it's not about that. You Don't commit adultery. That was a rule and a hard line that was followed. But he says it's not about that. It's about what's going on in your heart. If your heart even begins to gravitate lustfully, then you're just as guilty as the adulterer. And, and, and how extreme does he say the response is supposed to be? If you're looking at something you shouldn't, it's better to gouge your eyes out then allow that stuff to impact your soul. Later on, he says, you know, the eyes are a lamp for the body and whatever you let in there is impacting you. If it's your right hand causing you to stumble, cut it off, throw it in the fire. It's Jesus explaining an extreme reality when it comes to the area of human sexuality. Paul, as he's writing to the Thessalonians, says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. As he described this, you should avoid sexual immorality. Each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his spirit. The pursuit of sexual immorality, the giving in to lust is choosing that and creation and pleasure over the God that we're supposed to find our satisfaction in. But you know this stuff, right? I want to look at I mean, really answer the question, what is healthy sexuality? Like, what was human sexuality created for? So point number one, God created human sexuality good. And that comma's there on purpose, <laughs> so you can play around with this. It. It's good, and it was good. Genesis 1, God saw all that he'd made, and it was very good. Human sexuality was created Good, and I'm going to define that in a little bit of clarity in a minute. Let's go back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1. You know these verses well. God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they can rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea. The birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in unbroken union made this created world as an overflow of the love that they were experiencing. He created everything that we know. We were made in his image. So just as the Father, Son, and Spirit experienced this unique oneness, we were created for relationship and for deep intimacy. In that creation of, of man and woman in this part of the story, God gives him a blessing. Go, be fruitful, and fill the earth, right? I don't need to sp- explain what that means, but he creates an act that allows procreation to happen. And then at the very end, he says, and that was very good. Sex that God gave us was created and deemed good by him. You jump into the next part of the story, Genesis chapter 2. The Lord made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man will leave his family, his father and mother, and be united or cleave or cling to or hold to his wife, and they become one flesh. I have my moments where I'm like, God, this is really in the Bible, right? Right? Um, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. When was the last time you were naked in the presence of someone else and felt no shame? We were designed to be able to be in this place of complete openness and vulnerability and nakedness before people and feel free. And that meant that they weren't walking around constantly lusting after each other because there was something more going on in this story. The whole message that comes in the rest of scripture is God inviting us back to that place where we are naked and unashamed in his presence as he moves in us. So God created human sexuality, good. Number two, we have curated in the church a reductionist understanding of human sexuality. So what do I mean? We've reduced sexuality down to one thing. So here's a diagram to help explain this. When we're talking about human sexuality, it is a big expansive domain. It includes our spirituality. It includes the social elements of how we relate to one another, the the deep connections we form with friends, the bonds, the parenting. All of those things are part of our human sexuality. Human sexuality is actually behind the drive we have to produce things and create in the world. Our vocation and our passions are all part of human sexuality. And then within this, this arena that, that, that... Writers called Genital Sexuality, which is sexual intercourse and all the pieces that go around that. And what we've done in the church is we've reduced the conversation about human sexuality to the do's and don'ts of what we do when we're in this arena of genital sexuality. We've reduced the understanding of the purpose of human sexuality to a list of do's and don'ts. And then we walk out into the world and try and enforce on people that don't know Jesus the list of do's and don'ts that we're struggling to follow when we have the Holy Spirit. And people out there are psychologists and humanists and people from other religions and faiths and cults are coming up with all of these elaborate explanations of the beauty of human sexuality and presenting it to the world. And they're looking at the message the church gives and they're looking at the message the world gives and goes, this is a far greater picture of human sexuality than the shame-induced and fear-inducing message that the church has been teaching for years. We've got to recover an understanding of the holistic nature of our human sexuality. We in the church have reduced it to two things, right? Sexuality is about procreation or it's about what you could call recreation, right? That's the one we we affirm procreation and then we speak down on sexuality as recreation. We've reduced the understanding of human sexuality, Greek philosophers and spiritual writers throughout the history of the church have honed in on one word in scripture and in the Greek language to articulate human sexuality, and it's this word, eros. Eros is, I mean, if you're summarizing what it is, it's just passionate love or your zest life. In scripture there, there are four words used for love um, we're used to agape, the unconditional love of God. There's filio, which is the, um, the, the friendship kind of love eros, this passionate love and I can't think off the top of my head what the fourth one is but it'll come back to me eros was just, as, as writers talk about this, they describe it as this sacred drive or a sacred fire that drives all of human life Eros is the thing in you that makes you love the person that you're in relationship with. Eros is the thing that that when you see a beautiful sunrise, something stirs up in you with passion and joy and freedom. Eros is what happens when you're listening to a concerto and the orchestra reaches its climax and tears start pouring down your cheeks because of the beauty and the overwhelming emotion that you feel. It's those moments, the birth of a child, the climax climax of a great uh, orchestral piece or in the middle of our sexual intimacy those moments where we transcend the earth that we're in and we're whisked away to some other reality you've had those moments right when you see the beautiful sunrise where you climb to the top of a mountain and for a moment everything disappears and you're just wowed by the grandeur of it that's eros Eros is the thing that's agitated when you're in a job that just doesn't fit who you are and you can't seem to find your passion and you're just grinding along. It's eros that is unsatisfied. It's eros that when you're single and you're longing for a relationship, it's stirring in you the desire for connection. That's what eros is. And in the church, we've reduced it to the word that comes from this word, the word erotic. Erotic. We have reduced all of that beauty of what eros is to a description of the moment of sex. We've reduced it. And then that's the message that we've communicated to the world. Human sexuality has a purpose other than procreation. Human sexuality wasn't put in us just so that we can make babies and further the cause of the earth. Human sexuality was given to drive our longing for God. It was given to us to drive us to him. It drives us to find a passion and contribute to the world. It drives us to build relationship and form community. It drives us to love our children and care for them and raise them in the faith and the ways of Jesus. Eros drives us with the pain of those who are dying apart from Jesus and makes us long to take the gospel to them. Eros in all its forms drives us for the deep intimate connection that we were created for with our Father God. Paul, when he's writing to the Ephesian church, is, is describing what marriage and the sexual union that comes within marriage was designed for. So he writes, um, he writes to, to explain that it's pointing towards God's covenant commitment. So this is Ephesians chapter five, starting in verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Not one soul, not one spirit, a physical unitive act. This is a profound mystery, but I'm not talking about the man and the woman. I'm talking about the relationship between Christ and the church. Each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. The sexual act was given to point ahead to a greater reality. The intimacy that's supposed to exist between the church the And the savior of the world. Our human sexuality is a picture pointing us to a deeper reality. Again, Julie Slattery, here's what she writes in her book While God created sexual desire to awaken our longing for love, even marriage is not the ultimate fulfillment of that desire. Marriage is the shadow, the foretaste, the metaphor of the true longing to be known, embraced, accepted and celebrated by our creator. This means our sexuality is infused with a significant spiritual purpose regardless of our marital status. This gives great spiritual significance not only to marriage but also to celibacy. Celibacy for the kingdom is not a rejection of human sexuality. It's a call to embrace the ultimate meaning and purpose of our sexuality. The one flesh union is only a foreshadowing of something infinitely more grand and glorious. Single Christians know the ache and longing for a covenant love that hasn't come. Even those who are married feel this longing because the shadow will never fully satisfy our true longing for intimacy. A good marriage may give a glimpse of oneness, love, and intimacy, but we still want more. Spiritually, we live in a season of longing Anticipation, searching and seeking for our bridegroom. We've had this narrative in the church, you know, sex is bad, so get married really quickly. And marriage is the answer to all the life's problems. And then we get into marriage, and it doesn't satisfy sex, can be clunky and difficult, and messy. There's trauma from our past that interfere with our intimacy. Um, and we get stuck in that place. And then you've got the celibate or the single person on the other hand with no relationship longing for it. And we say to them, well, the solution to all your problems, get married. That's going to solve all your problems. Hands up here. Married people, if marriage solved all your problems. <laughs> A couple of people are like, oh, definitely not. Definitely not. Um. Intimacy, sexual intimacy, sexuality, connectivity is pointing us to the deeper longing and the deeper relationship we're supposed to have with the creator of our souls. Another author that I love, Ronald Raul Heiser, if I can get a chance to study with this guy, I'm, I, I'm desperate for it. He puts it this way. Sexuality is a beautiful good, extremely powerful, sacred energy given us by God and experienced in every cell of our being as an irrepressible urge to overcome our incompleteness, to move toward unity and consummation with that which is beyond us. It's also the pulse to celebrate, to give and to receive delight, to find our way back to the Garden of Eden where we can be naked, shameless, and without worry and work as we make love in the moonlight. Ultimately, though, all these hungers in their full maturity cultivate in one thing. They want to make us co-creators with God. Mothers and fathers artisans and creators, big brothers, big sisters, nurses and healers, teachers and consolers, farmers and producers, administrators and community builders, co-responsible with God for the planet, standing with God and smiling at and blessing the world. I don't know about you, but I read this stuff and something in me stirs. This is the message we as the church are supposed to be giving the world. But it's the, not the message that we've exported to the people around us. Let's hone in a little bit on lust and just some of the damage that it does. We see the image of what our human sexuality is supposed to be. But lust severs sexuality from committed, loving relationships. Sex is fantastic. It's one of the greatest experiences. It releases the best hormones into our body. And so when you experience it, you naturally want more. But sex is a vulnerable, giving act. God designed that level of intimacy to happen within a covenant. And it's the same when we think about our intimacy with him, right? Sexuality is always pointing to our intimacy with God. It points that the level of intimacy and vulnerability that we're supposed to have with God happened inside a covenant. He made a covenant to love us. Jesus came and died to win us to himself, to defeat the power of sin and death, to reconcile us with God, to give us a spirit that inhabits us, to bring us deeper unity with this God that we worship. Our intimacy with him happens inside covenant relationship. And all the scripture points to marriage, this covenant we make where sexual intimacy is supposed to take place within the covenant of marriage. Why? Because it's where our intimacy and our vulnerability is protected. Because when you go out in the world and you have a one night stand, you have a moment of pleasure, but when you leave, you leave discarded and rejected. That person wasn't committed to you. They didn't know who you were. They didn't know your brokenness and your hurt and the deepest places of your life. They couldn't speak in the hope and the healing that you were intended for. Instead, what happens is pain and rejection and a cycle of more one-night stands to feel important and loved and valued, and then the end of the night, you feel alone Our human sexuality was designed to function inside a committed relationship where the person is saying, I'm going to love you unconditionally no matter what. I'm going to create a safe, free space for you to be truly you with nothing hidden. And in that place, intimacy becomes its fullest. And many of us and many people in the world like marital problems happen and a lack of intimacy exists in marriage because we're no longer nothing hidden. We're hiding from one another. They don't know the true desires of our heart. We're not honest and open and vulnerable with one another because some place in our past there's woundedness or somewhere in the relationship there's unsafety. Human sexuality was supposed to lead us to this place of deep intimacy with the creator of the universe and deep intimacy with people around us, covenant community of the church, and then the covenant relationship of marriage where we can flourish and be whole. Lust is about taking and getting rather than about sacrificial giving. The whole image at the beginning of time is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in unbroken unity. The Father loving the Son and the Spirit and giving them worship and and blessing. The the Son elevating the Father and, and, and praising the Spirit and pouring Himself out to Him. The Spirit elevating the Father and the Son. Each person functioning in unbroken communion because all they did was pour love onto the other. Lust turns that around, and this is where you see its relationship to pride, right? Pride is where we turn away from God and others and we turn into ourselves. Lust at the end of the day is about turning on myself. What do I need in this moment? I need a sexual release. I'm stressed. I, I need something to help me. I need a relationship because I feel alone. I feel inclined to this particular way of living and it doesn't matter what anyone else says. I've got to satisfy this longing inside of me. Lust becomes about taking and getting rather than giving. Sex when done right, sexuality when expressed in its fullness is really the culmination of this son who came to seek and save the lost. We live as he did, giving generously to the people around us. Last point here. Lust is most powerful when we're starved for love. In your life, lust is most powerful when you're starved for love. And here's, here's the conundrum we're in as the church. Because we look at people in the world and we look at our own lives. I'll start out there. We look at the people in the world and we go, because of the way you're living, you can't be a part of the people of God. What they need to cure their lust is love. So we're taking from them the very thing that they need in order to overcome the battle that they're facing. Inside the church, we silence people in the area of their their sexuality in all its forms. And again, I'm using sexuality broadly. I'm not talking about sexual orientation. I'm not talking about sexual preference or even the sex act. I'm talking about the fullness of this drive inside of us for life and connection and intimacy. So, so we look at this area of, of genital sexuality. We see this person's lust and they're looking at pornography. They're hey, sleeping outside of marriage. They're cohabitating. Um, they're doing one night stands. They're on apps. And we judge them in the church. And, and, and then they go into hiding because they know if someone finds out about this, they're gonna kick me out. They're not gonna want relationship with me. They're gonna judge and condemn. And again, in in our silence... We create silence in them and they can no longer get the love that they need in order to get the healing that they want. What's it look like for the church to be an institution marked by love and intimacy and safety and entering into brokenness together so that we can bring healing rather than allowing people to be starved for love and caught in their lust? So what's the cure? I do this every week. I I wish I could go back to the start and ditch this word because these things are not the cure. They're tools that help us. The cure to all of this brokenness is Jesus, right? Right? The cure is that the Savior of the world came, lived a perfect life, died on our behalf, took our sin upon himself, dealt with sin at the cross, defeated sin and death, and then invites us to come to him. And when we give our life to him, he puts his spirit in us. That spirit fills us with love, changes our hearts, and empowers us to live the right way in the world. Right? That's the cure. But here's some of the things that we can do. And I want you to think about your own life. I want you to think about people that are sitting in this room. I want you to think about some of the people out there in the world, right? We're very good at us and them. I want you to think some of the thems out there that you've written off. Here's some of the solutions and some of the practices that we can engage in that bring us to a place of healthy human sexuality. The first one is connection. Jesus said it's not good for man to be alone. He created us for relationship, He didn't create us to sit in a room and have a Bible study. He created us for deep relationship. Right? There's there's more to it than just going to church functions. It's about being in one another's life. It's not just about the quantity of time that you spend together or the number of shared experiences you have. Connection is about being known. Are you someone that, if someone is struggling, are you the kind of person they can trust their brokenness to? Are you someone that's going to judge and condemn? Are we the kind of church that when someone walks in the door, we will allow people to be known? We will make the effort to know them so that they feel loved. Single people in the church struggle because they feel alone while those of us with families run back to our house and enjoy our family time. And we condemn them to isolation in their house. And then you go, what happened if... Every church in the every family in the church took one of the single people and every night we had a different single person in our house. So every single person had a family to be with every night so that they didn't feel alone. What if we adopted someone in our community who's alone to give them the love that they need and to let them be known and understood? We need connection. And those connections drive us toward the ultimate connection with Him. Honest conversation. So this is the, the kind of subpoint or corollary of that one. We have to get together and get real about what is going on in our life. I want to single out. So hopefully this doesn't come across bad. I want to single out women because I've had a few conversations about this recently. Women are so hard on other women. Me the other day, you know, when I go out to nightclub, I don't dress up for the guys. I dress up because the women are going to judge me if I'm not dressed the right way. I don't go to church and try and fix my hair on the way in because I'm worried what the guys are going to think. I'm worried about what the women are going to think about me. Women can be so judgmental with one another and create so much insecurity in the room. We've got to be honest about our insecurities. We've got to be honest about how we're feeling. We've got to be kinder to one another. Women of God fight for each other. Because when we're alone and we're struggling, what's the solution is lust. Our eros gets redirected to things that are unhealthy to try and satisfy the longing that we're feeling. Man, it's the same deal, right? We go out and we, a bunch of people were fixing lights this weekend. Thank you for those of you who did it. You know, you come in a room together, you do a project and it's like, yeah, we're buddies. And then you go home and you don't know how the person's really doing and what they're struggling with. We've got to get deeper and more honest in our conversation if we want to see these things healed. Number three, connection to God, right? All of these things are pointing to intimacy with him. We've got to grow in our awareness of his presence. It's really hard if you're in a room in the middle of prayer and fully aware of the presence of God, it's really hard in that moment to switch on a computer and look at pornography. What happens in those moments as we harden our heart to him and pretend like he's not there, then we engage in, engage in what's going on. It's really hard to go have a one-night hookup or use an app like Tinder to go hook up with someone. It's really easy to do it if God's not there. But when we cultivate an awareness of his presence, it changes the way we function in the world. Connecting to God, it's our prayer life, it's memorizing scripture, it's broadening our understanding of how he's at work in the world. Self-control. We've got to discipline ourselves. We discipline our bodies. Scripture tells us to flee immorality. So don't entertain it. Like if if there's a place that you go where there are people that are attractive and it causes you to lust, stop going. If there are websites that you go on, get a blocker. If your phone causes you to stumble, get a dumb phone instead of a smartphone and it'll fix some of the problem. We get accountability. We've got to discipline ourselves. One of the ways that we discipline ourselves is fasting. Now, I'm talking about lust. Why am I talking about fasting? Lust is a thing that happens when the hormones in our body are are, are uh, increasing. And then normally, triggered by either temptation or some kind of external stimulus, those things come together and we go... I got to do something about this. So I'm going to go sleep with someone or I'm going to go look at porn or I'm going to go look at a a, a romance novel. I'm going to do something because I've got to satisfy this urge. What's fasting? My body's telling me I'm hungry, therefore I have to eat. So the process of denying yourself food trains you in the ability to deny a sexual impulse when it comes up because you're training your body that when when my body says I need something, I don't have to fulfill it. So we deny our bodily urges and it trains us to be able to walk in greater holiness. Lastly, create. The huge part of human sexuality that we miss out of the equation is it's the drive for life. Lust is bad when we're alone and isolated and feeling worthless and meaningless. When we're stuck in a dead end job where we feel like there's no hope. When we're in conflicts and we don't know the way out. Create, paint a picture. Go for a hike, go fish, have a deep conversation with someone, write a song, dance in a field, change jobs, go to school, learn, write poetry, build a new building, build a new enterprise. We find purpose. It's eros released through us that gives us a sense of satisfaction and purpose and meaning as we engage in being co-creators with God. We're called to more. We've got to recover this message in the church. We've got to get better at sexual discipleship and understand and offer to the world the fullness of what our human sexuality is supposed to be. Let me pray. God, this is, this is hard stuff, Lord. It's, uh, sexuality is so deep inside of us that it feels like it, it has control most of the time in most people. But God, thank you that our human sexuality is good and it was created for purpose. Help us to retrain our minds. Lord, away from the do's and the don'ts and into the bigger picture, all that you invite us into. God, in our moments of loneliness, may we be reminded that we were created for intimacy with people, but more that we were created for intimacy with you. God, within marriage, in the moments of sexual intimacy, may we be aware that in that moment of deep, union and vulnerability and connection that it's just a tiny foretaste of what you invite us into in intimacy with you. And God, as we go out into the world, would you help us to enter in to the pain and brokenness of others because lust is just a symptom of their incompleteness. <clears throat> so God, would you help us to hear their pain, to let them be known, to listen, to befriend friend? to come alongside them as they become co-creators with you and the world. So retrain us, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. If you've not been here for this series, what we've been doing at the end of each message is just turn to someone next to you or at your table. Just share what's one thing that that stirred you or impacted you or convicted you. So share that. We'll take a few moments to pray for one another and, and then we're gonna come up and do communion before we go into worship.